3: Hey, guys. Ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election.
4: We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Hello, everybody. I hope you're enjoying our State of the Union content that we brought everyone yesterday. However, there is another major event that bears addressing on behalf of the Breaking Points community. You might have noticed we were on the Joe Rogan experience, and uh, Joe actually brought up what happened with Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar, her removal from the House foreign affairs committee over alleged anti-semitism in the course of that discussion he made a joke a joke which is uh let's just say not being well received we are going to play the full context For all of you, and then break down the ensuing controversy that has embroiled all of us here at Breaking Points. Let's take a listen to the clip first.
3: I just saw like Nancy Pelosi is endorsing Adam Schiff for California Senate. When you read through the way that man lied to the American public through all of Russiagate, you're like, yeah, he should be. It's should cra- be like in prison for perjury, not being bolstered mm-hmm. by one of the po- most powerful women in the country for the United him States set, Senate, sitting
5: next to Ilhan Omar, where she's uh, she's apologizing for talking about it's all about the Benjamins, yeah, which is just about money. Yeah. She's yeah. talking about she money. She shouldn't
3: have apologized. Sh- that I was, mean, I'll was not go ahead and that's not an
5: anti-Semitic it. statement. I don't think that is. It's about Benjamins or money. You know, the, the idea that Jewish people are not into money is ridiculous. Listen. That's like saying uh, Italians aren't into pizza. It's fucking I mean, stupid. listen, It's I, fucking stupid. I
3: understand that the way she phrased it, like she could have phrased it a different way so that people would have less of a freak out. But can you not talk about the influence of money in D.C.? Of course. When, I mean, this is very obvious. There's a very obvious reason why for my entire life. There's been a uniparty consensus around our policy vis-a-vis the Israeli government and a total inability or unwillingness to criticize the Israeli government. It has everything to do with organization and, yes, money, yes. just like every other fucking interest in D.C. And so, yeah, the fact that she said that and she got kicked off the Foreign Affairs Committee. Look, I have issues and disagreements with Ilhan Omer, but she actually is one of the more courageous voices on foreign policy who's willing to call out some of the hypocrisy and bullshit in U.S. foreign policy Extremely rare in terms of United States Congressmen. So it, it's actually kind of a real loss that she got kicked off that committee.
0: Yeah, she, whether you
5: agree with her or not, she has a bold opinion and that opinion is not her own. There's many people that have that opinion and right. they should be represented. Totally yeah. My point is, she's sitting right next to Adam Schiff and no one says shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I probably should have said, hey, motherfucker, what did you say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You Anna. said some crazy shit yeah. that wasn't true yeah. at all.
4: No. Okay. So that's the clip. Now you have it in its full glory. You can decide for yourself whether he was being anti-Semitic or not. However, many people have decided to use a bad faith view of what happened there and accused not only Joe Rogan, however, Crystal and I as well as somehow being anti-Semitic. So let me go ahead and read this tweet from Representative Josh Gottheimer, Democratic congressman best known for trying to save the millionaire salt deduction. He says, quote, it is despicable language like this that leads to attacks and threats against Jewish people. Joe Rogan has a massive platform. It's infuriating to watch him and crystal ball promote blatant, dangerous, anti-Semitic tropes, including those masquerading as anti-Israel sentiments. So Crystal, I just want to throw it to you uh, for your reaction, uh, because not only Gottheimer, but the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is now condemning Joe Rogan. They're condemning us. We have multiple pro-Israel groups calling us somehow anti-Semitic for talking about the role of money in politics and the way that lobbying works. So what what was your reaction to all of this nonsense?
3: I mean, first of all, I... uh went back and thought through, you know, our time with Joe and like that particular moment. And to the, to the extent that I really thought about what he said that deeply at all, it was sort of like, oh, it's a off color, like women be shopping level of joke. And so then I went on to make the points that I think are really important that I 100% stand by, which is that, It's not anti-Semitic to talk about the influence of money in politics with regards to any topic. And uh, even when it comes to the topic of uh, our government's relationship with Israel and Israeli government policy, Um, I think it is nonsense that Ilhan Omar got taken off of a committee because of her comments. I don't think anything she said was anti-Semitic. I don't think there was anything wrong with what she said. And I think we have to be able to be honest about the way money works in D.C., without just casually throwing around these very harmful and damaging and ugly labels. So, you know, Gottheimer's tweet, I don't even really 100% understand what he's saying there about, you know, masquerading as anti-Israel or something like that. I'm not even clear on what he means by that, but I can tell you personally I 1,000% stand by the comments that I made and my view of the situation with Ilhan Omar, and I would say it again any day of the week.
4: You have nothing to apologize for. For all of the people who are out there saying, how dare you, why didn't you confront him? First of all, he's a comedian, and he was making a joke. Now, I'm not going to say it was the most artfully phrased joke or whatever in the world. And, you know, if he wants to clean it up, that's on him. Number two, we were having... A substantive discussion around the removal of a United States congressman around allegations that she made that influence of money in politics, something that we all seem to agree affects every platform on Earth, but we're not allowed to discuss it here. As people can probably tell, I'm really upset because I'm not gonna just sit here and let people smear you and Joe Rogan as anti-Semitic. We've got every pro-Israel group and all these congressmen on the planet denouncing us as uh, somehow like, what is it? Anti-Semitic by allyship or some bullshit like that because we sat by and uh, didn't immediately call him out. Once again, I, I don't think that it was the best phrase joke. At the same time, like, who are you? What, you're the editor now? And, uh, you know, even then, take a step back. Do you believe Joe Rogan is an anti-Semite? I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. Do I believe, Crystal, that you were being anti-Semitic whenever you were talking about, you know, the influence of money and politics and how that relates to Israel? No, it's complete and utter nonsense. And this is how they smear people who want to talk about this at all. So I'm really honestly outraged by this entire thing. And the way that people have reacted to it um, in the broader establishment. And, and here's the worst part, as you and I know, Crystal. How many people will watch the full episode in a full context, in the full clip? How many people will, e- will dismiss what you said about that substantive point because of the joke that preceded it? And just so much of this is uh, just completely ridiculous. But they got the headlines that they wanted. You know, they got the headlines that they wanted. Breaking points is anti-Semitic. Joe Rogan is anti-Semitic. And a lot of people aren't gonna aren't, aren't gonna look past this. That's actually what's the most disgusting part of it all.
3: There's a whole outrage industrial complex. And so the fact that, you know, he makes this like off-handed, off-color joke, and that we don't immediately jump, how dare you, Joe Rogan, and jump right. on our high horse. But instead, use it as a moment to talk about the legitimate criticism of D.C. and the way that money in politics works. I I mean, I just listen. Honestly, I don't let it bother me that much because I think these people are bad faith. I think they're just looking for a way to take shots. I don't think they really are like deeply offended or morally outraged or like, you know, people are saying, oh, this is so dangerous. Come on. I mean, it was a state of the union last night. There are so much so many larger issues at stake than one off-color joke made by Joe Rogan and how we responded to it in the moment, in you know, our one hour and thirty minutes into a three-hour plus podcast. So listen, that's it is what it is. Like I said, for me personally. The direction I steered the conversation in, the comments I made about Ilhan Omar, about the way D.C. works, about what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, I stand by it. I'd say it again. I just said it today, and I don't think there is anything remotely anti-Semitic about talking about the influence of money in politics. And it is absolute bullshit that Ilhan Omar was pulled off of a committee because she was honest about such influence.
4: I agree. You know, actually, we didn't even get a talk to comment about that uh, substantively. I think what happened is totally ridiculous. I mean, especially, you know, uh, you're actually playing into the trope that you're not allowed to talk about it by removing them from the committee. And actually, that's what this entire thing has revealed to me, which is that you are like, what are we not allowed to have that discussion? Now, I deplore anti-Semitism. I think it's terrible. But conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is freaking ridiculous. And, you know, even to just to come back to what Rogan was talking about as you said he was making as i understand it and as i understood it in the moment it was one of those things where like everybody likes money now look i wouldn't have phrased it uh, the way that he said but also like who are you you're going to you know sit in the room with us uh, while we're all laughing or whatever having a good time and and, and being the the editor of all of this and then f- uh, having your faux outrage i've seen a lot of so-called free speech warriors crystal people who believe in free speech. Oh, this is so terrible pushing this, you know, cancellation campaign. They're like, we got to get right wingers to stand up or whatever against Joe Rogan. These people are all complete frauds. Uh in my estimation, they're jealous of him. They're jealous of the fact that they don't have as big of a platform and they are they are the ones proving the trope that we're not allowed to have this discussion by, without being called anti-semitic. And that is where that is why I remain outraged by watching people supposedly crystal on the side or whatever of the free speech come out and, you know, denounce us and denounce Joe. They're full of shit. Like, let's be honest.
3: This is always the issue where it really comes down to it. I mean, I've said this for a long time. The issue you're most likely to get canceled on is supporting Palestine, criticizing Israel. And that's one of I mean, listen, I care about free speech for the principle of it, not because of which side it Mm. happens to help or hurt in the moment. But, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy that's kind of exposed by this moment. Listen, again, off-color, offhand joke made by a comedian in the middle of a three-hour podcast. Is this really what we're, like, going to the mat over? I just feel like there are so many more important things for people to actually care about and get outraged about. And back to Mr. Gottheimer, by the way, one of those things perhaps people should be outraged about is this is one of the most corrupt members of Congress. As you said, Sagar, he's, like, the... Uh, The guy pushing for the millionaire salt tax cap tax break and one of the top funded congressmen from the private equity industry that he has gone and like carried water for. And guess what? I think we should be able to talk about that. And I don't think that it's anti-Semitic to do so.
4: Yeah. Yeah. He's the one who calls himself Mr. Salt. His entire thing is bringing back a tax deduction, which disproportionately helps millionaires and multi-millionaires specifically in california and new york and he has the gall to come after you to come after rogan for talking uh about also you know somehow making this into an anti-semitic thing so anyways uh i thought we owed people a reaction to it i as people can say i'm i'm pretty hopped up um about this entire thing and uh yeah i don't know i i i just i'm often reminded of like just how disgusting uh, the you know and how disgusting and inconsistent so many people claim to be mm-hmm. whenever it comes to free speech and secondary on the mainstream media I mean you got to go look every headline variety mediate all these other people they're like you know rubbing their hands together relishing this complete BS controversy because they have it out for Joe Joe is gonna be fine all right you know it'll be fine we will be fine here over. At breaking points, but that's not the point. You know, you can't just call people anti-Semitic. You, you can't just throw these things out there and, and try and spin it into a whole thing in the service of your agenda. And we are not going to apologize. I can tell you that right now for all the people who've reached out and said, oh, you guys got to put your distance between uh, yourselves and Joe. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I'll i save my most vulgar language for my response to that.
3: Um The last thing that I'll say about all of this is you can go back and look at our record of, you know, how we've talked about these issues many, many times on Breaking Points about our, you know, full throated condemnation of real anti-Semitism, like what was on display with Kanye West. I mean, the record is clear. So if you're super outraged about how we, you know, navigated this one moment in the middle of a three hour podcast, I would encourage you to look at the larger body of work. And again, listening back to it, listening back to the comments that I made immediately in the wake of it, where, you know, clearly I directed the conversation right to what really matters, the influence of money in politics, 100% stand by it, no regrets, I'd say it and do it all over again.
4: Good. All right. So, you guys know where we stand Uh, for all of those uh, who have asked us about the controversy. This is the last thing that we will say about it unless they want to keep this thing going. We can go all day. Uh, But, everybody, enjoy all the content out on the channel today. We've got our Breaking Points State of the Union uh, for the podcast. We have the full. the full audio of all of our pre and post coverage of the state of the union. And also shout out to many of the people taking advantage of the premium discount we have going on right now, 10% off for all of the JRE listeners who joined us since that podcast. I don't regret going on that podcast. I don't regret anything uh, that we said on that podcast and uh, for the critics, you know uh, I'll save it for later for my more off color comments.
3: All right. You have, of course, Ooh. been listening to the president of the United States delivering his State of the Union, leaning heavily into an economic message front and center at the top. Uh, but I think probably the thing a lot of people will pay the most attention to is how raucous the Republicans were. You had Marjorie Taylor Greene mm-hmm. yelling, you're a liar. Lots of, um, especially over his comments about Social Security and Medicare, there's a big uproar. They were yelling at him about the border and mm-hmm. other things. Um, Kyle, let me go to you. First of all, what were you your sort of big takeaways, big impressions?
5: well, um, I like the fact that most of the speech was economic and the early part was economic. I feel like that, you know, if you lean into that, that's positive and that'll get a a good reaction, I think. Um, But obviously, yeah, the bigger story is how, I'll go with the word annoying, how annoying the room was. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious to throw it to you guys. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old. I don't know if it's because I'm tired and it's past my bedtime. Mm -hmm. But every single time somebody chirped up, I was like... Shut up. Just mm. wrap it up. I don't want to hear it. It's annoying. He's speaking. He's the president. Even if he wasn't the president, if he was Bob from the PTA meeting, it's like, let Bob finish his thought. Because they're all just trying to get a viral moment. They're all just trying to fundraise off it because of the Joe Wilson moment back when Obama was president and he screamed, you lie. And they had massive fundraising numbers. It's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. You're all virtue signaling. You're all trying to get you know the spotlight on you. But it's it's dumb and it's annoying. Do you guys agree with me? Uh, I'm not so sure. Hey, here's the thing.
4: Uh, in terms of my objective, feelings about, or in terms of my personal feelings about it, I'm indifferent. If anything, I actually do kind of enjoy it, just because I like the idea of a raucous House of Representatives. That said, look, if it's all fake and it's all a stage, then these people are going to have to play their part, right? You pointed to that. Marjorie knows exactly what she's doing. She's absolutely going to raise a lot of money. But I would even step back. I don't think that was the biggest story that's going to come out of that. It might be a 24-hour thing, and some people will be like, oh my god, my my norms. Guys, the biggest story, the takeaway is whenever he would confronting them directly on Medicare and Social Security. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of the take, like in terms of what we will be talking about probably for weeks now, that moment is gonna get replayed over and over again when he's like, okay, are we all agreed here? Oh, so you agree with me, so it's not gonna be a problem. Stand up if you agree with me. That was actually, look, I'll I'll give the man credit. That was the best absolute part of the speech. It was the only part where he went off script and it did actually work for him. Uh, There were a couple where he, what did he say? Uh, Name a man who would trade places with Xi Jinping. I still do not know exactly <laughs> what that means. Um, all right, so like my meta uh, takeaway, I was telling you guys this during the speech, vast majority of people stopped watching the State of the Union after about 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah. The first 30 to 40, 45 minutes was all an economic message. Most of it was made in America. I mean, look, not even President Obama ever gave a made in America right. speech like that. And to me, that just shows me the way that Donald Trump really changed politics forever on made in America and on China. So those two issues, it's solidly, in this state of the union, no president even almost disagrees now at that point. So for the Medicare and the Social Security, and then I thought overall it was an effective speech as far as Biden ones goes. If I were him, you know, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy with my performance. Um,
3: Marshall, I want to yeah. get your thoughts. I sort of feel like uh, with the Republican interruptions, et cetera, Biden really led with this message of like bipartisanship and unity. He made a long show at the beginning yep. of say, congratulations to Kevin McCarthy. Congratulations to uh-huh. Mitch McConnell. We're going to work together. We did work together in the past. So he wanted this message of like, I'm the guy who is here to work with anybody. We've gotten some things done together, etc. And so it certainly serves Marjorie Taylor Green's and whoever else's interest to get their little viral moments for their Republican based fundraising. But I also do feel like that sort of plays into Biden's hands as well when he's trying to portray himself as the grown up in the room and the one that's serious about actually reaching out and getting things done.
0: Yeah, that's it's what we were talking about at the start of the real uh, you know, live show here, which is that voters like hearing that you know you could you could obviously i think i think it's important to separate the like annoying dc version of like oh back in the 80s everything Mm -hmm. was super chill and everyone was best friends the gipper and tip o'neill like that you know (laughs) you know the joe scarborough thing but like at at a baseline level the centerpiece of american politics right now is what like suburban moderate voters think and they want to hear that um marjorie taylor green's district may be interested in her doing that performance, but no one else is. And that's a real misjudgment that could be effective in 2024.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, let's step back. What did we say at the top? Or at least uh, for what I said, I said the balance is economy, lead yourself try to gaslight a little bit about oh everything's great you know all of that at the same time you're like i'm a bulwark again so what did he lead with he goes here's all the things i've done goes straight into the bulwark against medicare social security i will veto and what does he end on he ends exactly on stop the steal now look saying the paul pelosi attack had any to do anything to do with quote the big lie and not schizophrenia is ridiculous However, uh, politically savvy move, um, I think. I mean, it's because I what people pay attention
0: to what people say, so I'm Right, gonna
4: yeah, yeah so it's like one that. of those where, but listen, you know, you tie those th- two things together, uh, and, you know, it's savvy, I think, in that regard. You end on the democracy thing that really right. kept people there. So, look, I think he hit all the notes. It clocked in at an, around an hour, 15 minutes. As State of the Unions go, that's pretty average. I mean, overall, again, I, I just come back to, I'm like, effective job. I really think so. So, um... One of the things I had, I j- jotted
5: down a bunch of this stuff that I yep. thought was most interesting. One of my favorite lines was he was talking about um, the 15% minimum tax rate for corporations worth over a billion dollars. And he says they have to pay a minimum of 15%. And then he said, like, kind of casually and flippantly, God love them. Yeah. And that right. got a decent laugh. And, right. you know, I was chuckling here. I thought that was a good line. Um, I noticed early on, one of the very first lines was like, we've created 12 million jobs. And then ah, everybody starts clapping. And Kevin McCarthy sitting there like, yeah, I will not clap at 12 million new jobs. It's like, dude, this is one of the ones that it's like you have to do it just to look like you're sane. Hmm. Um, and then like you were pointing out the Social Security and Medicare moment there. What I was getting really annoyed by is like, just own it. It is a lot of the Republicans position to that. They want to cut it they might soften the language to try to blunt the effect by saying, no, we're just trying to reform it or save it. But functionally, they want to cut it. And when he says that's what they want to do, and they're like, boo, 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 it strikes me as so disingenuous, like just... Say, yes, this is our position, and we would like to debate that on the merits, and we would like to defend the position of cutting Social Security. They get so weaselly about it, and that's what was driving me crazy. I was screaming about it here in the studio when we were watching it.
3: So the thing that he's referring to specifically when he talks about, like, sunsetting these provisions was what uh, Senator Rick Scott, who was in charge of the Republican senatorial uh, campaigns this time around, so not like an insignificant player, it was part of the plan that he put out. And this was Mitch McConnell was basically like, shut the F up. We aren't. We don't want to talk about that. We're trying to run on nothing here and just like bash them on inflation. So this is not without basis. And you've had other Republicans also talking about the debt ceiling, talking about um, cuts to entitlements. You have had some others who say, no, no, we don't want to do that. Donald Trump obviously said like this is off the table. Um, but what's sort of more interesting to me is I feel like In previous eras, in the Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan era, they were much more comfortable owning the fact that they really wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare. Like if Obama had said that at a State of the Union, they would have been like, yes, we do. And Uh here's our plan. And here's Paul Ryan with the PowerPoint of how he's going to do it. And so, I mean, this is another way that even though you still have a lot of the same ideology, even though many of them still are committed to it, would like to cut Social Security and Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. the fact that they're offended that this is suggested about them, that they want to cut these programs, represents a pretty remarkable shift in terms of the Republican Party and what they Just want to publicly put forward.
0: What
4: do you think of that, Marshall?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, Crystal. I mean, the core thing, the, the, as, you're, as you guys are articulating, this really reminds me of the defund the police debate, in terms of like how you could identify a vulnerable area. So think of defund back in 2020. There were some Democrats who were very defund. There were plenty of moderate Democrats who weren't vulnerable. You can take the more extreme position as the party's trying to figure it out and that's and, as, a, as an attack point. And that's basically what's happening yep. with social security. Um, Back in the 2000s, like think of when George W. Bush tried to reform slash cut slash privatize social security after one re-election in 2005, like back then, the party consensus was that this is what we do. We yeah. fight against the New Deal, we're fighting against the great Society. that's our party. After the Social Security privatization failed, after Paul Ryan flopped as a VP and then after Trump then ran in favor of Social Security and in favor of Medicare um, you know Medicare. also we need to add the failure of the repeal of Obamacare, Republicans genuinely, don't know what to think um right. and i think as you see and the thing that's funny kyle i get your point about needing to have a fair debate and i agree with you most of the time but like jd vance for example jd vance like actually wouldn't be in favor of cutting yeah. social security he came out I don't, what you said. I don't think yeah. he's the, i don't think he's the best i don't think he's the majority of the party but especially with younger republicans who are basically grown up in an america that's accepted the new deal but it's accepted social security it's actually not quite clear what the actual position is, which is why it's perfect for Joe Biden to attack in that direction. Look, I, com- I-,
4: I completely agree with that characterization. The defund is exactly right. Right. Which is one of those. They're like, no, no, no. What we want to do is raise the retirement age. And it's like, well, OK, well, you know, you're still when you're already within that heuristic. It's like it's not going to be good for you. Uh, just so people know, cutting Social Security and Medicare is probably up there with defund the police and affirmative action as the least popular things that you could actually try and do in politics. Hence why he beats him over the head with the club with it, which is exactly what I would do. I was surprised that he didn't uh, mention abortion more Mm. in the speech. Uh, My count was a single line. It came, uh, let's say, like two-thirds or so into that. I was was pretty shocked by that, actually. That's something I would have led with if I was president. So I just want to say, look, I hope I'm wrong, but Um. we just saw with this whole fight
5: with getting Kevin McCarthy to be speaker, there was a whole fight and there were, it was a right flank that was pushing back against him. And sure. one of the things they settled on is we're going to have a debt ceiling showdown. And our whole position in the debt ceiling showdown is we want to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. So I think the overwhelming majority of the party is going to be on board with that. Now, whether or not, you know, I, I hope Biden is telling the truth when he's like, I'm not going to do some sort of grand bargain. I'm not going to cut it at all. But I think the predominant position in the Republican Party
4: is let's cut it. Well, I'm not so sure because remember, that's only 17 people, right? Who tried to extract that? Those are like the Tea Party, uh, Freedom Caucus diehards. What the look? The majority? I genuinely have no idea. I, I do not know. If you were to ask me, my gut feeling, I think most of them would say what I said, something around like they want to raise the retirement age. But of course, we don't. But want that's cutting. That's the cutting. No, 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 no. Yeah, I agree with you. What right. I'm yeah. saying is like that is what I think most of them. They don't think. They don't
3: want their year. position to be characterized as cutting. Yes. So security and right. Medicare. Because
0: they're trying disingenuous. And that's well, that's different. Like, that's that's the line they're going to go
3: with. Right. right, but that is even just them not wanting their position to be characterized that way is very different. Oh, and yeah, of course, but- the fact that I mean, Joe Biden was part of the Obama administration that actually put a deal on the table that would have cut Social Security. And now, clear, and he, you know, over the course of his career, a number of times uh, talked about cutting Social Security. So it does show you the way that the politics around this issue have clearly shifted. Now, one thing I think that's really important to say is that in terms of the big money institutions within the Republican Party, like the think tanks and, um, you know, the Coke industry, the Mm -hmm. Coke network, they still are very much looking for every opportunity they can possibly find to cut these programs. And that matters a lot.
5: I I think they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to like piss on people yes, and say it's do. raining so they want to do the debt ceiling thing force the cuts and then go us we're not we're just reforming it we're saving it so that's that's what they have that's their game that's what their game has been for a long time so I yeah. think that's the goal it's not like they're actually becoming more moderate on it because they're afraid to acknowledge what their actual position is. they recognize
3: you know how toxic and terrible the politics are for yes, them they recognize right. that they cannot be out and out being like yes we want to cut social security because they have realized that that is devastating for them uh, yeah. I, I want to we'll pick up Sagar on yeah. what you were saying, because that was something I noted too, you know, in advance, you were saying like, okay, mm-hmm. here's the formula. Yes, economics, but clearly the stop the steal stuff in January 6th and abortion, like that's what won the, the midterm. So he's going to lean into that. He really didn't. Um, both, uh, he closed with democracy. Yeah. He closed with January 6th, Paul Pelosi with um, abortion was also in the latter part of the speech. But the part that really counts in terms of what they're you know focused on and what the message they want to take away, it really was loaded up with economics. And I was also surprised that you had very little mention of abortion ultimately in this speech. I mean, the two themes that he leaned into very heavily to start with was this idea of, like, I'm the guy who can work with anyone, bipartisanship, let's get things done for the American people, and then laying out the case of what he— thinks he's delivered and what he still wants to do. Now, one challenge for him is the fact that we were looking at um, a poll before the speech. Very few people say they feel like they've been impacted by the Biden agenda. So, you know, whereas I think if you're overselling the economy and the rosy picture of the economy, you're going to have a hard time there probably is some benefit you can get just from selling, here's the things we did, and going down the list and trying to persuade people that, no, actually, um, we have been doing some stuff. What do you think, Marshall?
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, I just want to go back to a quick thing you said about um, the lack of focus on uh, the abortion, the democracy thing, like maybe, I think this kind of goes to my early comment about how I'd be curious about Joe Biden's like political analysis here. And mm-hmm. it seems to me the political analysis is that you need to move on from 2022. Like you're going to reach those heights, you're going to be successful that midterm, but maybe that's just not going to be successful running on that retread um, when it comes to 2023. Like there could be an instinct of like, man, we're going to still, like you're still talking about that. Like it's not, it's not up for grabs as much. So yeah, I, I'm really... I'm really curious how the right responds to the economic stuff, especially Sagar, to your point about how Biden and Team Biden are clearly taking the like made it in America, compete yep. with China bit that Trump added. So, that especially given the, I think, attempt to bring things back to culture wars is going to be an interesting shift there.
4: Yeah, I already know what they're going to do. They're going to go culture war, they're going to criticize them on the border, and they're just not going to talk about econ because that's how it goes. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Kyle, let's get our last thoughts from you before we bring in Ryan and, Ryan and Emily. Sure,
5: yeah. So um, I wanted to point out the fentanyl line from Biden. So he's uh-huh. over there talking about fentanyl. And um, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene and others that start screaming at him. And I heard somebody say China, Yes. And then somebody say, like,
4: it's your fault or something like that? To be fair, the vast majority of the fentanyl comes from China. Uh, Okay,
5: I know. I understand that. But I always get super triggered over this because I feel like the approach from many people is just brain dead. Because Crystal and I have talked about this. About 30,000 people a year die from overdoses when it was the pain pills. Mm -hmm. Then we cracked down on the pain pills with all the good intentions in the world. And then people went to the black market and they got heroin. Some of that heroin was laced with fentanyl. And now we have about 100,000 people dying every year. Mm -hmm. So it's this like the tyranny of good intentions in a sense. Because if I were to tell somebody like Margie Taylor Greene, like, hey, man, we need to legalize tax and regulate drugs in order to get past this whole fentanyl crisis. She'd be like, you're insane. That would add to the problem.
4: Well, I mean, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I think it's also a fair point to say, like, there is a lot of fentanyl coming across the border. And from what I've seen, uh, they've said that actually, if you did at least have some more enforcement that was happening there, it would make it much harder and raise the price, which would increase actually the amount of pure heroin. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing. What I'm saying is it's complicated. I also would remind you, uh, we have to talk about what's in the realm of the possible. And in that, uh, what was it? In the polling data that we had there, which, which one is that if we have- that element is that a three? Can we go ahead and put that up there Pew on the screen? Pew Research. I think cracking down on illegal drugs was at like fifty-seven percent. So I mean, the public is just not there whenever it comes to no. I understand uh, that. Like but legalizing drugs. Yeah, there it is. Reducing the availability of illegal drugs is right there at fifty-three percent. Biden also yeah. doesn't get credit though
5: when he a lot of Biden gets a lot of shots from his left on the border because he's continued a lot of the Trump policies on the yes. border. So he does a lot of the things Trump has done, and it's not like anybody on the right goes, "Hey." We agree with you on this one, fella. Well, they you're just talking act about like he's not doing it. They act like he's in favor of open borders or something. Well, it's you're so
4: talking silly. about migrants, and to be fair, his administration has tried to end a majority of those policies in court. And it's only after they weren't able to end those administration policies in court that they ended up keeping
5: well, them. So, actually, I think that's they fine. not
3: only kept them, they yeah. expanded them. Well, exactly. then they expanded a of
5: after other they tried to kill it in the court. So. Then they but, decided. And also, there has been a lot <laughs> of fentanyl seizures at the border. There's been a number of them. There's been some. I yeah. mean, they're yeah. also the idea that he's able. like not trying to see. My point is, look, we can keep going round and round in circles, trying to do the same policy that's not working, or we can do the actual solution. Solution, but she's not interested in a real solution. She's interested in yelling at Biden in the middle of a speech when he's talking about a very serious
4: issue like fentanyl. I don't she think he needs to get serious on it. needs to get serious on it too. I don't think anyone on this stream has claimed Marjorie is interested in a real solution. And neither she's, is Biden. That's neither is Biden. She's, a difference
5: maker. Oh,
0: just like, yeah, she's
3: she's also,
0: there. We uh, perhaps <laughs> yeah. can
3: can close this out with yeah. a uh, something that will unify yeah. us okay. in the spirit of what Joe Biden wanted to bring, which is um, both Kirsten Cinema and Marjorie Taylor yes. Greene apparently dressed like it. Was the Hunger Games. Yes, what is going on? Kirsten okay. Cinema wearing some yellow big bird ass looking yeah. thing. People who have all kinds of memes and Marjorie Taylor Greene in some white fur. Yeah, she looks like from
4: Lion the Witch in the, in the, the fucking Relative. wardrobe. I mean, yeah. look, I'm going to break my cursing thing. This is driving me insane. What the <laughs> fuck is going on? Like, Kirsten <laughs> Cinema literally is dressing like she's going to the Goddamn met Gala after presiding <laughs> over the Senate in a t-shirt with a heart on it. She is solely responsible for breaking a lot of the female dress code that is there. And I blame her for Marjorie looking like she's literally in the you know Hunger Games or Lion the Witch and the I am losing my goddamn mind over here um, over the collapse we'll of better. dress code. As Go ahead,
0: Marshall. Thing. What'd you gonna, say? If we're, gonna, if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna rank, um I think we have to say um George Santos' orange tie isn't great. Yes. Um, I think Marjorie, I think Marjorie but let me put it this way. I think Marjorie is more compelling than Kirsten Cinema is. Yes. Let me put it this way. Like if mm. Marjorie showed up in yoga pants and a t-shirt and you met her at a coffee shop, she would still like have like a lot of like yeah. main character energy to her. I yeah. clearly think Kirsten Cinema is someone who accessorizes to make up for the fact that she's just like bleh. So, boring. Very. I think that's insightful. Insightful commentary. Well <laughs>
3: insightful commentary.
0: <laughs>
4: okay, everybody, stick with us. Just give us five minutes. We're going to switch the chairs out. We're going to have Ryan and Emily in here. Thank you all so much for your support. Control room, let's throw the graphic up there, and we'll start Marshall the conversation.
3: Marshall and Kyle, process. thanks guys.
4: Marshall and Kyle, guys, guys, guys. did a
5: fantastic job. Thanks Thank for you. listening.
4: Okay, we're back. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with us. Look at that wide shot. We got Ryan and Emily here. We got CounterPoints, which is in, heads, the yeah, in the house. Yeah, lots of headroom. <laughs> uh, if this were uh, any other time, we would be doing a little bit of camera adjustment. But this is what it looks like when it's live, when we have a brand new, beautiful studio that you premium subs are helping us with. It will be different, we promise. Uh, okay, so people have heard us talk a little bit now. Ryan, Emily, you guys watch the speech with us. Uh, what do you guys think? Ryan, you go first.
1: All right, I mean the thing that's most important to me about this is that it is the launch of his presidential campaign. Yep, right. Yep. So you're really not going to make a whole lot of policy and you're not going to make a lot of, you're not going to move the needle on public opinion and really on the ground or in the room, except for that Medicare thing mm-hmm. and so- Medicare yes. and Social Security thing, which was absolutely remarkable. We yes. want to talk more about that in a minute. But if this is what he's going to run on, this is kind of exciting. Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a party that, like, working people could get behind. I mean, what did he talk about? He talked about, uh, you know, supporting organized labor, uh, pass the PRO Act, go after big pharma. We're going to uh, address climate change. He said we're going to, uh, you know, cap insulin prices, uh, uh, you know, billionaire me- tax. Medicare and Social Security, billionaire tax. We're going to bust up monopolies and all the different fees. I'm going to a resort, and, and it's not even a resort, and I'm paying a resort <laughs> fee. <laughs> But what, you know, that seems very personal. His friend's yeah. house that was clearly free. personal. That's how it, yes. I don't, yes, he's and, never and, encountered that. And his this friend house. charged him <laughs> a point. resort fee. Good point. But so, you know, <laughs> so you can, and yeah, and he's going for the identity theft and some funny stuff like right. that. Like some, somebody, people are getting to him. Yeah. But in general, it, it's that's a platform that people could get behind. It's, mm. it's strange.
3: It was a lot of Matt Stoller was very excited in yes. this because yeah. he's talking about antitrust. Uh, what was it, first president?
1: The first president
4: since 1979 mm-hmm. to mention antitrust. To
3: mention antitrust. Yes. You're yeah. talking about industrial policy. You're talking about making Infarma. things in America. Making things yeah. in America. And then, you know, I mean, I'm not big on this whole squishy, like, bipartisan comedy, whatever, but, but there are a lot them. of yeah. people who are really into yeah. that. That's a very normy sentiment of, like, why can't we all just come together and get some things done? And what I said earlier, Emily, and I want to get your thoughts on the whole thing, though, is um, I think the fact that you had this Sort of ugly raucousness from the Republicans in there really did kind of play into Biden's hands of looking like the grown-up in the room.
6: He looked in control too. He was yeah, almost he like engaging with the crowd. Yeah. He let them finish. He wasn't and he wasn't heckling them back. He let them finish. So I think optically that's 100% correct. That did not work in the way that let's say Marjorie Taylor Greene or whomever else was involved in it wanted it to work. That said, uh, to Ryan's point and actually Kyle made this point too. He gave a speech that was so front-loaded. On on economics. And that's really smart. Mm-hmm. If you're Biden's speechwriters, you should be really happy with how this turned out. He's sort of checking down, going through the laundry list um, and fleshing out, actually, not just listing off, but fleshing out things like infrastructure, things like the CHIPS Act. Now, the, to the bipartisanship point, I think that's a fascinating point because it's it works with people until the country stops working. Yep. Because he had a line earlier where he talked about basically decades of hollowing out the middle class. Who was in the Senate? Who was the senator mm-hmm. from MasterCard <laughs> yes. with identity theft? Yes. For yeah, decades I I brought that of hollowing up. I, I agree. out yeah. the middle yeah. class. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. like, so that's a, a real problem for Biden. And I think he has never had a, a real answer to confronting it head on politically. Right. But attacking in that direction, it's not just good news for Democrats. It's good news for the country that Republicans, at least optically, were so vehemently offended by what Joe Biden said with Social Security and Medicare because they said Kevin McCarthy gave his whole speech last night. It's off the table. It's off the table. That's good news for the country because it tells you where the Overton yeah. window is.
4: You know what's funny? I'm monitoring the professional press corps. What yeah. are they all talking about? Decorum in the House. Right. I'm like, who cares about the decorum? Right. Like, Look, really? I'm not saying it isn't a thing, but social security people yeah. medicare that is it that is going to define the next couple of months of our politics it's driving me nuts and like that was the first thing i zeroed in on i was like man that's a big moment that is going to be every ad the biden ad the launch i'm the one who protected it i will veto the bill, Crystal picking up on the fact that Republicans are not willing to go there. Yet, this also puts Trump on the back foot where he's like, no, they're lying that we don't want to cut social security, but he doesn't have a unified coalition. I'm like, this is it. This is the whole ball game, Ryan. So yeah. w- what else do you want to dig into? On yeah, that?
1: and for, yep. for decades right. on the left, there's right. been this internal argument, yeah. do, do you work within the Democratic Party to try to make the Democratic Party a better mm-hmm. thing or do you, do you work outside it, you start a third party and try to pressure them from mm-hmm. there? As, as the working class is kind of being divided by b- between the two parties here, a kind of new answer is emerging, which is that you actually work within both parties. And Joe Biden did that tonight. Like I've never seen a speech like that kind of change the negotiating yeah. table, yeah. change mm-hmm. the game in the way it did. Before this speech, Republicans had their game plan for when it came to the the debt ceiling crisis. You know, they're going to hold it hostage. They're going to force Biden to the table and get some cuts. And then they're going to agree to it the same way that they jammed Biden up 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They come out of this speech with nothing left. Right. Like, so what are they? Okay. well, now what are you going to do? You're not cutting military spending because you're Republicans. Now you can't cut Social Security and Medicare because you just told the whole country that he's a liar and that you would never do such a thing. So you're left with the EPA and like, uh, NOAA yeah, yeah, yeah. and the BLM they can cut BLM right. And, right. and tell their base that it's Black Lives Matter I would and actually say they it. can trim yeah. the Bureau it's of like Land White Management. Yeah. Yeah. I was going
4: to yeah. say, yeah. leave yeah. Clive no.
3: Bundy alone. Yeah.
1: Right, I'm just gonna, yeah. He's going to fly back yeah, for yeah. that meeting and defend yeah. his budget. Well,
3: I do, to your point, because they obviously took great umbrage at the suggestion that they wanted to cut Social Security Medicaid. They would never do such a thing. No, they want to save it.
1: They want to strengthen it. Right, exactly. But I
3: mean, the numbers just don't work out. Like, the math just doesn't work out. If you're like, I want to slash the budget by this huge amount, right, which they do and which they've said publicly, but I don't want to touch Social Security Medicaid. Like, it just literally doesn't. Or the Pentagon. If you put those together, like, it's not going to work out for you. And so that's why it is a fair hit to say to them, like, no, you... You wanna hold the debt ceiling hostage. You want to cut these programs. You have a track record of wanting to cut these programs. Senator Rick Scott said you wanna cut these programs. And uh, it was pretty remarkable to see how much they freaked out about that.
6: And a good sign, though, again, because this is post-Paul Ryan politics and Republicans have realized, I mean, you can cut the entire Pentagon. This is per Brian Riedel at the Manhattan Institute. You could literally get rid of the Department of Defense and you can't balance the entitlement mm-hmm. balance sheet in the way that Republicans say that they want to. And there's a reckoning with that on the right right now that doesn't mean that Mitch McConnell wouldn't love to get his hands on and strengthen Social Security and Medicare. <laughs> um, but I think I I think it's at least sort of becoming, and again, I think this is good for the American people. You have J.D. Vance, Donald Trump coming out and saying the same thing Um, and setting the tone. You have Russ Vogt, who's hugely influential in the new right and in Republican politics. His entire plan to balance the budget, he was OMB under Trump, is don't touch Social Security and Medicaid. You can get rid of, to the point uh, that you guys were making, all of the woke policies and mm. you don't have to. You can balance mm. the budget in 10 years without touching anything else. And just the fact that the wheels are in motion on that tells you that Republicans are like, no, we literally cannot even whisper a word about it. And if you if it comes out of your mouth, we are putting you in the corner.
4: That's a really interesting point. Uh, we got Marshall and Kyle's reaction. I was curious for your guys' reaction. So right now Sarah Huckabee Sanders is giving uh, her— <laughs> Rebuttal. I don't know who's watching it, but we have an excerpt, and I think that the excerpt is important more so in what's not in it, um, and what is in it, and what the case of what the potential Republican pushback against this is going to be. I'll just read this again. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and relights your hard-earned money on fire. You get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves. Our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. And while you reap the consequences of your failure, the Biden administration seems more interested in woke fantasies than the hard reality that Americans face every day. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace. We are under attack in a left-wing culture war that we didn't start, and we never wanted to fight. Emily what did you think of the strategy there to really go hard at the culture war? And to be fair, she didn't actually watch the speech before she
2: had <laughs> released that excerpt.
4: Yeah. So uh, clearly, but I mean, that's kind of how all these things work. You get a predetermined little fact sheet and all that. What do you think of that strategy?
6: That's a really good uh, study in contrast, I think, because yeah. she expects Biden to come out, which is wrong. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a good example of how Republicans are disconnected from the Biden that they're actually mm-hmm. fighting as opposed to mm. the straw man. Mm. Uh, and, and then it's not to say that Biden isn't doing stuff in the culture war. Of course, he is sort of bureaucratically in the executive branch. That's in the DOJ, right? It's not a national name. Right. Right. And the the education department and all of these things that people aren't necessarily able to follow on a single day-to-day basis. But that Sarah Huckabee Sanders comes out anticipating a Biden culture war speech. speech, And what she gets is something like what Stoller points out, Mm -hmm. the first president to champion antitrust Mm -hmm. reform in the State of the Union since 1979. I haven't seen the full Sarah Huckabee Sanders speech yet, but man, yeah. Is that going to miss the mark right. if Biden is out there talking about increasing manufacturing, increasing jobs, increasing, uh, decreasing unemployment and all of these economic metrics? Um, she said the choices between normal and cr- or crazy. This is a, a quote I just saw from Twitter. Uh, Republicans punching at uh, a culture war straw man is not giving people that choice very clearly. She's, <laughs> said, she's saying, yeah. it's a,
1: right. That's, but that's right. their problem because right. Biden is the one that comes off as normal. This is... Yeah, Uh, that right. And that that's why that's Biden's strength is is in some ways his weakness. He's this like centrist all white man. And it's just not Mm going to land. You're just not going to call him a radical wokester. And it's and have it stick. Yep. Yeah. Didn't Jesse, it was like Jesse Waters or somebody said, people just don't hate Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah, it's has, true. Yeah. It's true. It. It's right, something so good, for, yeah. good on good for so, so on yeah. the
3: other hand, um, let's go ahead and put, what is this, B3 guys that we could put up on the screen here from the Washington Post where you have uh, the latest Post-ABC poll, which had a lot of bad numbers for Joe Biden, says more than six in 10 say the president has not accomplished much despite they say the passage of numerous bills, which is true, um, 62% of Americans say Biden has accomplished not very much or little or nothing during his presidency. Only 36% say he's accomplished a great deal or a good amount. His approval rating is low. Uh, we showed a poll earlier that has him losing to Donald Trump. Of course, a lot of polls out there too, having losing to Ron DeSantis. If DeSantis ends up being the nominee, you have a majority of Democrats, Ryan, who say, we don't want this guy yeah. to run again. We want someone else So even as, you know, I listen to that speech and there's a lot in there that, you know, I respond to. I think it's a a good case he makes about what he's done, about what he might do going forward, laying out industrial policy, antitrust, pro-labor, etc., but um there's a lot of signs the American people aren't really feeling that right now. Right.
1: Mm. The flip side of nobody hating Joe Biden is that nobody really likes him. Right. <laughs> either. Yeah.
3: This he's just, he's just I kind of okay.
1: He exists. Seven yeah.
3: percent of people who said they were excited <laughs> Excite- about him. Who's but excited we'll about him? Yes. 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 It's yes. the cast of Nicole
1: Wallace's show.
4: That's too. Not even the good one. Yes. <laughs> if there is such a thing.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, nobody no so yeah, nobody's excited about him, but that's not. That's not that's not how you govern anymore in America. And it's <laughs> not necessarily how you win elections. Yeah. Like Hillary Clinton's problem was nobody was there. Were, you know, she, had, she had this small group that was really excited about her. But in general, people weren't excited about it. I was just qualified yeah. and most qualified, et cetera. But people intensely disliked her on the other side. Yeah. And it became a contest. If You remember in the polling at the very end of who was the least disliked. Yes. by the American public. And Biden ended up beating Trump four years later because he was less disliked than Trump was disliked. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. With Trump, he has very high
4: favorables and very high right. unfavorables. Nobody right.
1: feels ambivalent towards right. Trump. Whereas with Trump,
4: Trump. Everyone's ambivalent, yeah. ambivalent to About Biden. Yeah, Biden. everyone is basically ambivalent. He's like, he's fine. I
3: uh, mean, Emily, the thing I keep coming back to with Biden and his reelect is, I don't know if you remember, Ron Klein after Emmanuel Macron won re-election mm-hmm. in France, where his approval rating yes. was total trash, yes, right? It was like that. in the 30s. Yes. And he's able to win, and he won pretty easily over Marine Le Pen because people really hated her a lot. And so, you know, Ron Klain tweets this out, and is like, oh, interesting, he won re-election with a 36% approval rating or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that kind of seems like the path that they are hoping for for Biden. And so that's why you see, you know, not only in the speech, he really did front load with what he's done and what he wants to do and where we are, et cetera, on the economy. But there's also quite a bit in there, which obviously Republicans got upset about, about the Republican plans and why they were the wrong direction. So, I mean, in some ways, I think his reelect hinges on how much people dislike the Republicans, how extreme they are, and how much they want to avoid going in that direction again.
6: Right, and that's why it totally depends on the nominee, we've, and we've seen that show up in polling. But it's a really important point because I think American politics is lurching towards that reality for the foreseeable pu- future. Period, um, where you have people with really low approval ratings, maybe even low favorability ratings, that are just able to muster the right, yep. cobble together the right coalition, and just scrape past or get to that fifty percent mark or forty nine, whatever it is. Um, and that's the reality I think we're facing in the country that we're too divided to have. I think like Ronald Reagan's re-election, you know, where he's just trouncing absolutely everybody. Um, this is not going to happen, or Bill Clinton. I mean, right. we're just we're not in that uh, world anymore. And so Republicans, I think, need to realize that if they want to create this dichotomy of normal versus crazy. They need to figure out how to make that stick to Joe Biden. They need to yeah. not be the and crazy. And not be crazy, Well, right. yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, can't, yeah you, can't. you have to do both. <laughs>
3: you
1: can, don't you can't do the Cruella
4: DeVille thing and stand up and yell. It's a tough uh, one. I, I yeah. really don't know how they get their way out of it, because it's like I can make the case on either side. Like, if I'm Ron DeSantis, look, like, okay, let's say Trump, we had a fun debate at our live show. What happens if Trump and DeSantis both die? Um But what's more likely? What Let's the say hell Trump. Is wrong with uh, you guys? It was a funny. It was a fun. Listen, uh, honestly, it was of us a fun have segment. The I trip into Santos so many times. We're
3: like, right. All right. We're, we're like, like what Trump if they both? Like, what if they both? Move move my, on. they both
4: get arrested. My scenario was that they were both on Air Force One, and
1: Air Force One crashed. Marshall like, on had way a good one. They they or, blow
3: up the Chinese balloon. Yeah, over and then it
1: Florida, falls on and the debris takes them both out. And Santos arrested for grooming. Yeah, Santos. Actually, no. George
4: Santos killed them both. Okay, so. Move on. Sorry. Part of what we got Too much from that, part of what we got from that dialogue uh, was that they need to try and reconcile the craziness of Trump and the energy of that with the fact that they still won 6% of the national popular vote yeah. during the midterms. Like, this can be done. Joe Biden is weak. We have all of the polling data to show that. It is Trump and that wing which is dragging them down electorally, however they hold so much power institutionally. Go ahead, Emily. Yeah, no, yeah. I think
6: that's that's yeah. 100% true. And yeah. Biden is picking up on this with his own party in a way that Republicans who have seen the, the culture war sort of path to victory in a Virginia yeah. or a Florida, yeah. you cannot just translate that to Sarah Huckabee's Sam- going all in and having right. absolutely no answer to Biden's very sort of like normy um, aimed square at the middle economic speech. That's that's like a kitchen table, real person speech. You can't just come out swinging with that kind of stuff. And Biden, for instance, he didn't say much, as you guys pointed out earlier, on abortion. He didn't say much that. about yeah. the border. He didn't say much about LGBTQ issues. He said we had one mention of young tra- of, of transgender young people. Right. Um, but the bulk of the speech was on the economy economy, on the economy. He didn't even talk about Ukraine that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was at the
4: bottom third. Yeah, we noted I was that as, as it. well. Yeah. Right?
6: Mm-hmm. And so the I think Democrats have realized, probably picked up on the number from the midterms, which mm-hmm. the midterm narrative was was one thing, but it is true. Republicans did have a, a, a decent night, not nearly what it was projected to be, but they did okay in the popular vote. So if Democrats see that, they do have a lot of culture war problems. They, there's just no question about it. You did a great podcast this week on Deconstructed, where you sort of talked through some of this. They do have those issues, but Republicans can't fight them in a way that handicaps themselves going into uh, those battles. Biden doesn't
3: give them a lot of ammunition, and I'm not aware of a national election that has ever been won on the question of what local schools should be teaching or not teaching.
1: That is our destiny, though, to have presidential elections hinge on you know, who gets to play on the lacrosse, <laughs> to, the lacrosse team. Uh-huh. Like that will, that will be like eventually where, where this system is heading. I don't know if it'll be this one or four years from now, or, but it's part of the like the, the process of just removing more and more decision making away from elections. Mm-hmm. And, so, and but you still have to give people something to fight over. Right. Yeah. But but the, speaking of not having anything to fight over, it's like the Democratic Party seems like they they don't have the the civil war that they had over the last kind of six, seven, that's eight right. years. It's it was basically won by the establishment with you know Biden finally beating beating Bernie, but they also absorbed a decent amount of what what Bernie was fighting for. And so and so that's why you, you see so much frustration on the outside that Bernie's not fighting mm-hmm. more that you know Bernie's become mm-hmm. a big supporter of Joe Biden. Because mm-hmm. Bernie, as you know, budget chairman writing the reconciliation package mm-hmm. he's you know he's he's seeing trillions of dollars of spending go through uh he, you're you're seeing uh you know unemployment knocked down to what 3.4 percent lowest and lowest since yeah. like 1969 yes. right uh, and so uh you, you you have this he talked about the nearly 400 billion dollars in climate spending and so
6: he called himself a capitalist they kind of,
1: yeah they said so, yes yeah, so, yes yeah, right exactly so they kind <laughs> of they kind of ended this Civil war by a, beating Bernie, but then uh, B, bringing in a decent amount of what he was fighting for, just enough to kind of keep them happy together. And because Democrats, Democratic voters are so fired up about electability and beating the, the evil Republicans, you know, they're going to keep putting forward people like Biden, probably. Whereas Republicans still are, you know, fired by the, by the cultural issues and, and, and because I think they were told that Trump was un, unelectable. They said, screw it, we don't care. Mm -hmm. We're electing him anyway. We're we're nominating him anyway. He won. They don't don't want to hear about electability crap anyway for people. And Um, they're not going to want to hear that for a long time. Go ahead,
3: Chris. Emily, what do you see as the contours of the coming Republican— I mean, the the Republican civil war is Mm -hmm. sort of upon us. You know, people are kind of choosing their sides and the battle lines are breaking down. But, like— do you, is there are there economic issues that are involved in that Republican Civil War? Is it primarily around culture war issues? Clearly, Ron DeSantis is positioning himself as like the you know I was during COVID, I was the guy who was open for business. Donald Trump was shutting things down. Whether the facts of that, whatever, that's how he's positioning himself.
6: Is that gonna be the key dividing line? How do you see this playing out? So it looks like Nikki Haley is gonna announce formally and do a rollout next week. And that's already what I've seen some on the kind of new right talking about is like what an embarrassment that this is just a Tea Party ghost um, who has not updated herself whatsoever. But then the question is, what is the substantial difference between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley? Because with Donald Trump, we know to some extent that it's just a mixed bag. It's the same thing with his foreign policy. You're gonna get some new, some shocking new, and some of the old stuff, it depends on who wins the fight at any mm-hmm. given moment, the tug of war at any given moment. But how substantially different is Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin, Mr. P.E. Patagonia vest, <laughs> going to be on that issue? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really open question. And the primaries are going to be a place where that's sorted out because Republicans do face pressure now. After Donald Trump, this is post-Paul Ryan era, not to do things to Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Like This is a huge source of pressure on Republicans. So I think a lot of it will be Cashed out in the midterms. I think it's completely up in the air now. I think anybody who says the Republican Party has been, you know, permanently changed for good and turned into the party of the working class is absolutely wrong. That's not to say there isn't some reason for optimism. It's possible. And by the way, Stoller talks about this. This is good for everybody. The Republican Party is never going to be a beautiful, wonderful, pure party of the working Mm -hmm. class. It's not going to happen. The Democratic Party is not going to be either. One might be better than the other, but the Republican Party at least being dragged, kicking and screaming to say things like, if we're going to balance the budget, we're not going to do it from stealing and raiding from Mm -hmm. your entitlement funds. That's a good day for everyone. but the question is still open.
3: I mean, yeah. I see that and I don't because at the end of the day, the McCarthy holdouts also begged and demanded a vote for the frickin fair tax, which is, you know, <laughs> Get rid of the terrible, like, <laughs> terrible, regressive, like total Tea Party throwback stuff. And the whole contours of the debt ceiling fight outside of them just not publicly wanting to be accused of cutting Social Security and Medicare. This is Tea Party 2.0 stuff. I mean, this is all Tea Party tactics. Their asks are Tea Party asks. So it's, you know, when I look at something like that, I'm like, oh, does it really change? Is it really different? Because now that Trump is sort of less clearly in command, too you know, a lot of their talking points and their economic policy has just floated right back to that Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan era, ultimately. And I mean, it's Trump himself, his biggest accomplishment was a gigantic corporate
6: tax cut that they all are perfectly happy with. (laughs) Well, and the other thing, and you'll definitely have thoughts on this, but uh, antitrust is a huge, and I'm actually very curious if Sarah Huckabee Sanders had a word about antitrust because Republicans Mm. have actually made significant motions. Some of the most powerful antitrust suits have been filed by by people like Ken Paxton in Texas, and the Trump administration against Mm -hmm. Google, um, there's some real meat on the bones. That's like one of the areas where there is actually truly a realignment, um, to borrow a word from Sagar Marshall, Mm -hmm. that you can see happening. And what's who is is, is Ron DeSantis? Is Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Is Nikki Haley? What are they going to say about that? How would they govern? That's a completely- well, Nikki Haley is already right. on record. We know where Nikki against, would be. She's already
4: yeah. on record against what is well, it. And now she's taking
6: her lane out yeah, on that. She, now yeah. is t-
4: not the time to rethink capitalism, uh, yes. is what she famously said right. um, yeah. in, in her speech. <laughs> so good luck, Nikki. Uh, I'm going to enjoy watching you fail. I really will. I could say that as the Indian American who doesn't want to see you be the first one on the stage for all of us, but- Ryan, uh, I'm curious here also on the Democratic side. So at the end of the day, you know, the laundry list of here's what I want and all this, it's not going to happen. This was all just oppositional. So to that extent, Biden, we were talking about this is the kickoff of his campaign. It seems like it did a pretty good job. Like overall, this is probably as good as you could probably hope for. Um, and he didn't step into any of the pitfalls. I saw that he's on his way to Wisconsin and Florida. In Florida, I'd just be like, "Give up, Mr. President. Right. Like that's that's, <laughs> that's uh, that ship sailed, sir." Yeah. Wisconsin, that's a smart move. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like going into those two states in the next couple of days, like this is probably going to be a pretty high point for him, and uh, especially coming off the midterms.
1: Right there, were, there were two. Paths he could have taken when yeah. when Republicans said we're going to hold the debt ceiling hostage to force demands. He could have taken the last Joe Biden approach, yeah. which was great. You know, we all need to get together. We'll do a commission and we'll, Simpson Bowls. We'll, Simpson yeah. Bowls. We'll hold hands together. I got Bruce Reed here. He was my staff guy. <laughs> then. He's still in the White House. Yeah. That's he's got true. The, he's still there. Dust the plans off <laughs> and yes, like. People wanna work longer and right. you know, Medicare is too generous and Med- Medicaid, you know, it, you know people, people need to uh, be incentivized to get back to work. Like they could have been that Joe Biden right. or it could be the Joe Biden that we saw tonight. who's was like, who, who baits them with the Rick Scott plan uh, mm-hmm. and then he could have baited them with the Kevin McCarthy plan saying they were gonna strengthen social security and Medicare. He gets them to call him a liar. And he said, oh, oh, wait, we got a lot of converts here. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. So great. We're not so so it, he goes the other direction and says, we're, we're, we're not going to go down that path, which means that the, the Biden uh, who came out of the gate with the, you know, he, he said, here's my offer on the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. And Susan Collins comes back. She's like, here's our offer, $550 billion or 600, whatever it is. Two hours later, he puts out a statement. He's like, we're doing this alone. Mm-hmm we're not we're not taking six months like Obama did and like allowing Susan Collins. To just like dictate this to us. Mm-hmm. That was a shocking moment mm-hmm. in, in like democratic political history. Yeah, them
6: you know how he's been like conferring with John Meacham and trying to step into the FDR shoes. And this is like actually reported. Axios has had reports no, right. on yes. Biden mm-hmm. like yes. genuinely trying to rescue the soul of the nation and seeing himself as this FDR figure, mm-hmm. not like FDR light, but like FDR next generation, truly. Um, and he had a line in the speech where he talked about, I think it's the Inflation Reduction Act provisions of it not going. Going into effect until January 1. So people are just starting to feel the economy heating up, and the economy is heating up in different ways. Um, And that might explain the disconnect between the mood of the country and polling and what Biden sees as a a hot economy or a heating up economy. Um, But to that point, is it some of that seeing him slotting himself into? That character, this FDR-like figure that has made him say, I'm not the old Joe Biden. Screw it. We're not waiting for Susan Collins. Um, But at the same time, he did say Republican friends over and over again in that speech. Notice that? I mean, this... Is in particular
3: a real break from the old Joe Biden. Here's the, the line from the speech: "If anyone tries to cut Social Security, I will stop them. If anyone tries to cut Medicare, I will stop them. I will not allow them to be taken away—not today, not tomorrow, not ever." Now, um, <laughs> he doesn't say in there "not yesterday" because <laughs> he's tried <laughs> <Right>. multiple times <laughs> yeah. in the past. For
1: 40 right. years, I tried to right. cut yeah. Social Security. But, but if you today, try, it, yeah. no, yeah. not, yes. to not
3: tomorrow, not <laughs> yeah. ever. Well, take what we can the get. Folks. Yes, so. God I mean, love you. Yeah, I mean, listen. I don't want to oversell it because, on the other hand, you know, went out of his way to like bust the potential rail strike and hand power to the bosses there. Like, hasn't fought for uh, lifting the minimum wage. You know, mentioned yes. the pro act here that fell off the table. Didn't really put the screws to mansion and cinema over Build Back Better. And so, you know, we were all happy when we got something in the Inflation Reduction Act. But it's easy to forget how much the actual original vision was trimmed um, by a a lack of willingness to play hardball and a willingness to, like, just accept the rulings of the parliamentarian and things like that. So I don't want to oversell it here, but I do think there are some noteworthy shifts in terms of—I mean, even just industrial policy and antitrust. Hmm. These were, like— uh, antitrust, I mean, the Obama administration was terrible on antitrust, mm-hmm. terrible, allowed some of these gigantic mergers to go through that now people are raging about, right? The Ticketmaster um, being a, a primary example there. And... Um, You know, so industrial policy was basically a dirty word in both parties for my entire life until now.
4: Up until literally, I think, three years ago. Yeah. Really, really, when Biden put out. You were a communist. Do you remember when Biden put out, what was it, his, like, Made in America plan? I praised it on Rising in here. I was like, hey, listen, that's pretty good. I was like, you (laughs) could say whatever. You know, I was like, uh, by the way, I was like, Jared, please release the Made in America (laughs) thing from the National Security Council, which I know that you held up for two years and then didn't end up passing for literally no reason. So in a lot of ways for Trump, this is dangerous territory. I mean, Biden is taking the two most singular popular things that he did. Which was China, and it was made in America. Look at that, you know, the way that he talked about China in the speech. And Although then not also, much. No, he didn't talk about it much. But look, ter- he did not say that what seven years ago. Right. What he yeah. was trying to say in that whole uh, switch places with Xi, I speak Bidenese, is because I used to watch him whenever he was coherent, and he would always talk about how he was one of those people. He was so pro engagement with China. He he yeah. often says this. I'm the only person I've spent more hours with Xi Jinping than any other Western leader in the world. i Sat there and I've talked with him across the table. He that was his big his selling son. point. He
6: was so excited. He even Oh, I know. His
4: son. Yeah, actually, there, were, there was a lot of business dealings going on. <laughs> that, day, uh,
6: that was side the big guy. <laughs> yeah, all on
4: Air Force Two. Another story for another day, of which we have covered several times, but the point is, is that he has gone from engagement to confrontation. Clearly that is, without Trump, that doesn't happen. And he's also now gone completely with Made in America, the full embrace of all of that. I do want to know who he is. He goes, many people don't like when I say this, but we're gonna buy American. I'm like, who is saying that? <laughs> right, like, exactly. Outside of like <laughs> JP Morgan CEO, who is saying that? Larry, I'm like, Larry I like Summers. that, most people like that. Larry, Sum- Larry
1: Summers. Yeah, yeah okay. Like
3: Got some yeah. got some flap in the country club. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, one last thought, and then I want to hear you guys' yeah. final thoughts as well. But, you know, one thing we talked about going into this, which maybe it shouldn't matter, maybe it shouldn't matter. I think it's reasonable for people that have concerns about a man who would be 86 by the end of a next term. And so as much as the New York Times was running a story that I know is planted by Biden aides about how he's preparing to overcome his stutter in this speech, um, sort of trying to set the bar low that mm-hmm. if it doesn't go well, don't be an asshole. It's because he has a stutter. It's mm-hmm. not because he's old, guys. Don't say that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I mean, he's still Joe Biden at 80 years old. It's still not what he used to be. It wasn't like an incredibly masterful oratory. But. Ryan, I think, you know, in terms of what he's capable of, this was a pretty well-delivered speech. And as Emily was saying, you know, being able to do a little give and take with the audience, that's not easy to do. So I think also he did himself some favors in terms of persuading people that this is a man who is still capable of conducting the business of the presidency and that we're not all going to be left in the hands of Kamala Harris, dear God.
1: <laughs> I, well, I, th- I, think, I think we're also starting to all grade him on a curve relative to what, what we expect right. from him. Like he, I think he has successfully set the bar really low for yeah. his mm-hmm. public performances. Right. Every time he tried to go off the teleprompter, off script with a little riff— Yeah. You're almost holding your Tanks breath for oh, him. He tents <laughs> up. It's Outside like, of the, the Medicare thing, yeah. they were all bad. All bad. Uh, every he, single he, one. Even his <laughs> start. He starts He's, out yeah. by saying, I, I get to be here because Jill's going to ga- the game yeah. tomorrow. And, like, uh, what anyway so are you talking, so, about? Like, are you talking
4: <laughs> about the Super Bowl and the Eagles <laughs> like, yeah <exactly.
1: laughs> like, what are you what <laughs> <laughs>
6: that,
1: that's, that's Sunday man he's very excited to right. see
6: yeah. how Donovan McNabb performs yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> what like I, nice he, should, yeah. he, should he, have, he should
1: he should have he should have finished with a go birds at the end yeah because like there's he's not <laughs> no, 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 winning no, no. Missouri that's true Dr. Oz
6: what a Dr. he's he Fly Eagles Fly Rock yeah that's good uh, yeah, well, on that point, and he did seem to get Tyree Nichols' name wrong. Um, it wasn't Aldum Tyler. Sound like yeah, it Tyler. wasn't great. Sounding yeah. like Tyler, yeah, it wasn't a perfect performance. Um, but I do think that because the bar is so low for him, every time he clears it and looks like he can give a normal presidential speech for an hour. Again, because the bar is so low. And part of that, by the way, is because Donald Trump was the preceding president. Yep, that's a good um, point. And, and Donald Trump's State of the Unions tended to be pretty boilerplate and conventional. That wasn't true of the rest of his communications. <laughs> so Joe Biden being able to just give a speech for an hour, talk about his Republican friends, and make America at least sort of be back in the political theater that people are comfortable with, I guess that's a win for him.
4: Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, uh-huh. thank you so much for your analysis. I hope yeah, everybody enjoyed simple, the guys. stream. Uh, thank you so much also to our premium members who help support the show and keep all of these things going. They are expensive to put on, so we really much appreciate you. And uh, we love you all. We're gonna have some content for you guys tomorrow. Hint: it involves a congressman attacking uh, Crystal Ball, my partner over here, and <laughs> Joe Rogan as a vicious, a vicious attack, calling them anti-Semitic. We will get into all of that tomorrow. We'll have a full show for everybody on Thursday. Lots of great- content in the interim, and we will see you all later. We've been tracking a lot of Jeff Bezos news in respect to the Washington Commanders, and it looks like there could be some developments here. Let's put it up there on the screen. So Charles Gasperano he reports that Bezos is considering buying the Washington Commanders and that the Commander's sale will take place weeks after the Super Bowl and owners meeting in March. Despite the denials, People inside the NFL think that Bezos' bid will come after the initial bids because given his wealth, he is capable of making any numbers work <laughs> for a purchase. So, so he's
3: gonna see what other people put on the table yeah. and then he's gonna be like a little bit more. Here's up
4: a billion here. more. So can we just wrap this up and everybody will be like, yeah, totally. All right. Let's just do a handshake. Yeah. I don't know how it's gonna work out. As you pointed out as well, Dan Steiner doesn't like Jeff Bezos. Why? Because Bezos' paper, the Washington Post, is the one that exposed a lot of his wrongdoing in his organization at the same time money's green no matter whether somebody took you down or not but these guys are billionaires so they operate at a different level you know it's an extra billion here or there but uh, the other question is that the previous reporting from the New York Post said that Bezos was exploring a sale of the Washington Post mm-hmm. to possibly finance this. So maybe Snyder would be like, "Okay, you can have the you can have the commanders, but you have to sell the Post if you want to do that." So mm-hmm. I, I could see him being petty enough to do that. Um, Bezos. I think he absolutely is going to end up with the Commanders because, listen, I mean, these guys are like gods in America, these NFL owners. Like, nothing comes close to being, like, a pop culture icon. That's what he loves. You know, Bezos loves being Hollywood, and, you know, the Instagram thing. He doesn't even work anymore. Big Lizzo fan. Amazon. Yeah, he loves Lizzo, <laughs> apparently. Um, the guy is, like, he's no longer interested in being, quote, respectable, which is what <clears throat> the post bottom. He's interested in just being super rich and being culturally relevant so buying the NFL an NFL team is the best way to do that Yeah, you know he could turn the stadium into one like the biggest stadium or the the best or where he could out compete Jerry Jones and be one of those types of people and you know like I'm sure people would like it they absolutely would and don't forget Amazon HQ2 being built right here in the DMV area in Crystal City where thousands of Amazon employees are going to be already. He already owns the biggest house in Washington, D.C. This would just step it up even more.
3: Yeah, this is what it looks like to go through a midlife crisis when you're one of the richest men on the planet. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to buy an NFL team. Maybe I'll sell this newspaper. It's kind of a pain in my ass. Let me get rid of it. I don't care anymore.
4: It does sound fun. I'm not going to lie. It it looks pretty fun. Uh, (laughs) Um,
3: The other thing I have to contribute to this conversation is... As a long-suffering Washington uh, football sports fan, Dan Snyder has got to be one of the worst owners in the history of Mm -hmm. the NFL and perhaps all of sport. And uh, one of the good things that the Washington Post has done under Bezos' leadership is expose all of that. But, you know, that being said, I'm, like, not cheering for either one of these Mm -hmm. men. So we'll see how it all unfolds. He continues to deny it. Um, They're also—I mean, the Washington Post— is in not great financial straits. They've been having to make layoffs. They bet all the way in on, like, Trump and political news coverage. They didn't really diversify in the way the New York Times did. So the financial position there for them is not very good. Um, That being said, you know, he's a billionaire. He could prop them up easily without any problem. But does he want to do that? And more importantly, does he want— You know, I think he didn't like— that when he was going back and forth with Biden on like tax policy or yeah. whatever, he didn't like that people were like, hey dude, you own a really important newspaper. Maybe you shouldn't be putting your hand on the on the scale the way that you are here ultimately. And by the way, we see this as sort of like reflected in your paper's coverage, which is a problem as well. And I'm not sure that he liked um, that and the, the implications of having actually some real responsibility with owning the Washington Post. So we'll oh, see absolutely. what happens.
4: All right. Look, the best move for him, sell the Post, get rid of it. Don't put your hands in this and become a cult, pop culture figure. You already kind of are, you know, the whole Jack Bezos meme with his girlfriend. Uh, and also, look, Washington, like people who have ever been suffering for a long time. Uh, by the way, Chris, we actually have some fans on the Washington Commander, so shout out to those guys. Oh, do we? Guys. Nice. Yeah. Um, and I, I won't out them anymore. yet. I'm I not going to out it. them before they football. out themselves as breaking points. Fans. <laughs> they have made it known to me that they are fans uh, of the show. But what I think would be cool is that, look, there are a lot of people who, well, you know, they have very low season ticket holders. It's very hard to sell the game. Yeah. And DC doesn't have a good enough sports community. Every, you know, when the caps are good, then people get excited. It, but, used, to,
3: it, yeah. used, to it, it used to be, to be different, different Saga. Yeah. No, was I know different. it was, it was I know. the. I mean, this was the most valuable franchise in all of sports when I was growing up. I mean, these were Super Bowl winners. And mm. when the stadium was here in the city, it was totally, ever since they moved out to Maryland and uh, is it still FedEx Field, whatever yeah, the FedEx. heck it's called, yeah. it's, it's the ex- fan experience is terrible. The vibes of the team are terrible. Like, all that tradition and history was kind of swept away. Daniel Snyder, terrible owner. So, yeah, listen, I'm not super excited about Bezos owning the team, but getting someone different in there, I would hope it would kind of revive what, what this great team used to be. An extremely dangerous situation in Ohio. 5,000 people had to actually be evacuated from uh, one part of that state after a Norfolk Southern train derailed. It was carrying some toxic chemicals, uh, burst in flames when it derailed, and then there was a danger that it would actually explode. They had to do a so-called controlled release that also released a gigantic fireball. So a really terrifying situation, one that could have uh, gone... <laughs> bad pun, off the rails. And now we're getting some reporting from our friends at The Lever about how corruption may have provided the backstory that led to this extraordinarily dangerous situation. Uh, Let's go ahead and bring uh, Julia Roxy's journalist with Lever News to break down the story. Great to see you, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So um, let me go ahead and read the headline that you have here. You say rail companies blocked safety rules before Ohio derailment. Norfolk Southern helped convince government officials to repeal brake rules and corporate lobbyists watered down hazmat safety regulations. So tell us exactly what you found here.
2: Yeah. So this is basically a story about how, you know, over the past decade or so, as the biggest railroads were spending uh, a lot of their profits on executive pay and stock buybacks, they were declining to upgrade their Civil War era braking systems, which basically make it impossible to stop all of the cars on a train at once to uh, electronically controlled braking systems where you can stop the entire train uh, simultaneously. Um, And the, the sort of point of these upgraded safety systems is that, you know, in the U.S., lots of trains are carrying things like crude oil, hazardous, flammable chemicals. And so the stakes are very high if something goes wrong and the train derails, Um, So during the 2010s, the Obama administration tried to uh, impose some more stringent safety measures on these trains carrying flammable hazardous materials. Um, But the railroads came in, including Norfolk Southern. They lobbied really hard against these rules. When when a limited version of the rule was finally put into place, they they got the Trump administration and uh, congressional Republicans to uh, strike it down.
3: I mean, I think we all got a close-up look at how much these freight companies really don't care, particularly about health and safety. um, Given the way they laid off workers and pushed them out, the limited amount of time off, if they got any at all, and you know, these are like it's not easy to (laughs) to conduct a train, and you can have uh, we've had an increase in derailments as a result, in part of the way that they have treated their workforce. Um, What is their side of the story here? Why did they push back? against what seems like an obvious important safety innovation in terms of these braking systems.
2: Well, so you're right. The backdrop is exactly the same as, as what they've done with their workforces. Uh, you know, like you said, they slashed them by about 30 in, percent in the past decade or so. You know, the argument of the railroads wasn't even that these brakes are not safer. Norfolk Southern had actually tested out some of these brakes back in 2007 and said, like, they are way better than the, air, the conventional air brakes that we use. They reduce stopping distances by up to 60 percent. But then when the Obama administration turned around and said, OK, install them on your trains, you know, carrying hazardous chemicals and and oil, they said it's too expensive. The the benefits of it do not um, justify the high costs. That was their argument. It wasn't that the brakes uh, weren't effective. It wasn't that they would make the trains more safe. It was simply that they were too expensive.
3: You have another piece here. It's not just regarding the the brakes, but they also sought to limit what could be classified as hazardous materials. Let me read a little bit from your piece. You say alongside their campaign to kill the brake rule, industry lobbyists pushed to limit the types of chemical compounds that would be covered by new regulations, including the brake rule. They proposed limiting the definition of high hazard flammable trains mostly to cover oil trains but not trains carrying the industrial chemical on the Norfolk Southern train that necessitated evacuations in Ohio. So, I want everybody to think about this. This train derails, catches on fire. You have to evacuate the area. They do a controlled release that results in a gigantic fireball. And this was not classified as being a high hazard flammable train.
2: Yeah, so people people in the area were told that the rail cars could explode and, and launch deadly shrapnel as far as a mile, But but this train was not being regulated like you said. As a uh, highly hazardous flammable train. and 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 that's in part because of of successful lobbying efforts by the chemical industry as well as other industries to very narrowly limit the types of substantive substances. That would give trains this classification uh, as high hazard flammable trains, as as well as sort of create this high threshold whereby a certain number of cars had to be carrying the material and the cars had to be sort of uh, either next to each other. There had to be even more cars spread out over the train. So they, they create a very high fr- threshold for a train to even be subject to these regulations that are supposed to uh, impose more safety features on trains carrying really dangerous chemicals.
3: And finally, Julia, help us understand who were the political players involved here. How much of this happened under the Obama administration versus the Trump administration? Has the Biden administration had anything to do with it?
2: Yeah, so the the Obama administration, uh, you know, if you look at the coverage from the Times sort of surprised people in in. Uh, imposing this requirement on railroads to install these brakes, I think surprised them because there'd been so much industry pushback. And as we know all too well, the Obama administration was was always uh, welcome to folding under industry pushback. Trump Trump moves to repeal it, and and the Biden administration has not. Um, attempted to reinstate these rules you know biden railroad regulators say yes these brakes are much better we endorse them but it's not on their rulemaking agenda uh, they haven't they haven't indicated you know any in in intention to do it and 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 you know the 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 point you made early on i think is worth again highlighting here that again the backdrop is is uh workforces have been slashed on these trains Inspection times are getting much shorter. You know, workers are exhausted. They're coming to work sick. Of course, that is making all of this more dangerous. And there's also plenty, as you've talked about on the show, that the Biden administration could do, you know, to help these workers and 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 force um, better safety standards on these railroad companies in all sorts of regards. And and they haven't done it yet. Yeah, I'm just shocked that Mayor Pete hasn't gotten right on top of that, Julia. Um,
3: you know, workers when we were covering the potential rail strike and their negotiations, this is exactly the type of accident that they were warning about saying, I mean, listen, when you stretch people so thin and you are working them to the bone and they have no time off even for the basics of going to a doctor appointment, guess what's gonna happen? It's not just their health and safety that's gonna be compromised, but there are gonna be massive spillover effects. And this is just a really sad and horrifying example of that. Um, Great reporting on this, getting this backstory, helping us understand how we got to this point. Um, Really super important. Julia, great to see you. Thanks so much. Yeah, our pleasure. thank you guys for watching. We'll have more for you later.
0: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury,